0: My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors at Alpine Church. And as we start our message today, I want you to think about this. What is your ideal picture of heaven, your picture of your perfect heaven? Okay, have you ever thought about that? Like, okay, so is yours more like a feast of all the great food from around the world that you could ever, just sampling all this different wonderful global ethnic food? Or or would you rather have like your three favorites over and over and over again, right? Your three favorite go-tos. And then you can, of course, eat all you want without ever having heart disease or getting fat or anything like that, right? That, that's Some people, that's heaven, right? Or maybe your idea of heaven is um, all the things that you just love to do and you can just do them without without limit you know like you hike you like to hike you're just going to be mountains and you could hike all day long for a millennium right or or you have your your projects your hobbies your crafts your things and and you can just do them without ever running into trouble like without ever not being able to figure out how to make that thing work or or whatever it is and maybe for some of you your perfect heaven is just family and you want to have family around you all the time you know, in every, in every situation. Now, that might not be their perfect heaven, but that's your perfect heaven, right? You want to have them around. Or maybe you're a sports fan. Maybe your perfect heaven is like the NFL without the Patriots or, or something like that, okay? Um, or, or like you have the ability to fly. I've always thought, you know, maybe I could slam dunk a basketball When, But that's not special because everybody could, you know? So, eh, I don't know. Maybe you could fly around. Maybe you could just blink your eyes and be on the other side of the universe. I don't know. Today, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we're going to get a glimpse of the real heaven. Not our fantasy, personal fantasy heaven, but the real heaven as it really is. And it's a picture of the throne room of God, and it's too dazzling for human words even to be able to express And as we read it, we notice there's nothing in there along the kind of things that I've been talking about, but the focus of of heaven, the real heaven, is on God the Father and on on, uh, His Son, Jesus Christ. And what you'll notice that as we look at this, that it's a picture that keeps getting larger and larger and larger by the minute till by the end of chapter 5, the whole creation is joined in praises uh, to Jesus the Redeemer. Now, we're in week two of our seven-week series in Revelation. Last week, we encouraged you to read through this book, at least parts of it. Maybe you could read through it once or twice during the course of the series. Um, Some of us are going to try to read through it um, every week for the series and try to get a, re- a repetitive, repetitive picture of it. So I'm just curious, how many of you were able to read something in Revelation? Not the whole thing, but read something in Revelation this week, okay? Great. How many of you were confused by some things you read? <laughs> and how many of you found out found something encouraging in what you read? Okay, so that's, that's very cool. That's really good. You know, we're not going to be able to answer all your questions. We're not even going to try to that you find when you read Revelation. We're not going to dive into all the different interpretations of, of all the different aspects of the book. But what we're going to try to do is put the spotlight on Jesus. And that's going to be our consistent theme throughout the book as Jesus is revealed chapter after chapter after chapter in this book. And so as you read it, if you just remember that the book is all about Jesus and you keep kind of that focus, that lens in mind then a lot of more things will make sense and you won't worry about so much about the things that don't make sense as we go along. And as we look at Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 today, we see Jesus revealed in two powerful images. He is the lion and he's the lamb. Now before we dive into that, I want to just show you something that's going on in these, these two chapters. They're really, That's really one scene taking place. And what we see in there is that there are five songs or poems, songs or poems in the book, uh, chapter 4 and 5, and if each one, the audience, the crowd that's singing becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay, so if you have that in mind, that's going to help you navigate through what's going on a little bit when, as we go today and if you read this later on on your own. And so um, as, we, as we look at this, um, Jesus, he's not really introduced until chapter 5, and chapter 4 sets the scene. And what we see in chapter 4 is that God the Father's plan for world history is advancing perfectly that god has a plan and his plan is moving forward perfectly that's one of the things that we see revelation has this way of kind of unveiling what's going on in the heavenly realms that we can't really see one thing that we're going to see here is that this plan is happening so john sees a door open into heaven a voice says come up here and he's transported in a vision into into heaven now What's the first thing that people notice when they enter your place? Do they notice all the pictures of family that are on the walls? They notice how big your TV is? Maybe they notice all the kids' shoes that are all in every room all scattered all over the place? Well, when John moves into heaven, he walks through the doorway into heaven, what he notices immediately is this incredible, majestic picture of this being seated on a throne. And he tries to describe that in verses 2 through 7 in chapter 4. If you're looking at that in your, we're not going to read every verse here. I want you to, to, to look at uh, those verses in your Bible, in your Bible app, because you're seeing he's, he's trying to describe in human language this, this indescribable picture of this being seated on the throne, and it's beautiful, and it's colorful, and it's also fearful and amazing all at the same time. And then he notices, the beings that are around the throne. He says, there, he noticed there's 24 elders, they're called, that are sitting on smaller thrones around the throne of God, and there's four beings they are just called living creatures because he doesn't know what to call them. There's for these four living creatures. They're covered with eyes. They have multiple wings. And nobody can explain exactly who or what these beings are. They're probably some kind of angelic beings. We know there's, they're different from each other, and they have different roles to play. The description as you read that is probably symbolic and not literal. Uh, that, that There's not actually eyes all over these beings, but it's probably a symbolic of something about them. Now, we're not going to try to explain all the symbolism that we see in the book of Revelation, partly because our focus is on Jesus, but partly also because we just can't, because even scholars today don't always understand all the things that we're reading in the book of Revelation, partly because There's a gap, a a gap of 2,000 years and a gap of uh, tremendous cultural differences from the first readers to us. Now, to help you understand this, I want you to know, I want you to think about contemporary images that we have in our culture, symbols that we understand and we know what they mean, but other people around from another time might not. So when I show you that picture, you know who that is pretty much, right? Most Most of you know that that's Uncle Sam and that he's not really anybody's uncle and that he's not really a real person but he's a symbol of the united states uncle sam united states and we understand then when we see that you know figure in a political cartoon or or something like that we understand he's representing our country but in 2000 years from now Somebody from another continent might look at that picture and be very confused. Like, who is that guy? Why is he pointing and why does he look like he's mad? Okay, so sometimes the symbols in Revelation are going to be hard for us because we're removed from them. But other times... There's the symbols in the book of Revelation that are really clear, and they're very meaningful. And in fact, we're going to see that in, in chapter 5. There's some symbols that are, that are just uh, really make sense, and we'll, we'll dig into that as we get there. But here John is trying to take all this in. He walks into the, the throne room of heaven. He's trying to take it all in and all the things that he's seen that he, he can't even describe when suddenly the angelic beings speak. And this is the first of the five songs or poems we see in verse 8. And by the way, let me just mention, there have been countless worship songs and hymns that have been written over the centuries by Christians based on these five hymns or songs in Revelation 4 and 5. You might recognize some of the words that we read as we go, as words that maybe you have sung over the years. So in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, Each of these living beings had six wings. Their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. Here we go. Day after day and night after night, they kept saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and is still to come. So the very first thing that John hears when he enters the doorway into heaven is not, hey, welcome, or make yourself at home. But he hears this declaration about the one who is seated on the throne. And the Lord God, the eternal, always existing God, is being constantly, continually declared by the angels to be holy, holy, holy. And what that means, that word means that he's he's transcendent that He is so far above us, that He's awesome and majestic, that there's no one or nothing in all creation that is like Him. He is a completely separate kind of being from His, from the, from his creation, that, that He's not like us, He's not the kind of being that we are. And the threefold repetition, holy, 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 that reinforces the uniqueness and superiority and supremacy of God. And then in verse 9, whenever these four living beings open their mouths to give praise to God, the others around the throne start in as well. And this is the second song, and now there's not just four voices, but there's 28 voices that join in. The 24 elders lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. So here God is praised for His power to create and maintain the universe. This is an important question. Why does everything exist? This is a conversation that as Christians we often have with atheists and agnostics. Why does anything at all exist and not nothing Why does all this exist? And the biblical answer is because God wanted it to. And so it happened. He willed it and it happened. Verse 11 said God created because it pleased Him to do so. In other words, it was His will to do that. God's the driving force behind the existence of everything that there is. And you and I own our very being. We're dependent completely on Him. And for this, He deserves In Revelation, unending glory and honor and power. Now, what that means, one implication of this is that God gets what He wants, that if God desires it, it will happen. Now, I'm not saying by any means that God is a spoiled, entitled child or that He's some kind of an egotistical tyrant. You see, because God is holy, that means that whatever He wants is good, that whatever He wills or desires is perfect. We see here that God had a plan. He had a plan that started with the creation of everything that is. It pleased Him to do that. And so the same power by which God set everything into motion at the beginning is the same power and the same will that keeps things going forward until the completion, the culmination or consummation of all the purposes for which God created in the first place. You can read about His creative actions in Genesis chapter 1-2. and Now if you do that and you read on into Genesis chapter three, you might start having some questions. You might it might look like things get a little bit of off track. Because in Genesis chapter 3, humanity turns away from God. And throughout the rest of the Bible, we we read about all kinds of sin and sadness and evil and war and murder and greed and all kinds of trouble that comes into this perfect world that God created. And so it's easy to wonder what's going on. Did things get away from God just a little bit? And maybe in your own life, you have the same question. You're going, man, this isn't going the way I thought it would go. And you have relationships that you put a lot into, and, and, and yet they're broken in your life. Or you have finances that are out of sorts, or you have dreams, that, plans that you were pursuing that, that just have never panned out. And whether we're looking at world history or personal history, it's easy to say, is this really how it was supposed to work? Is God really on the throne? Does God really have a plan? But here we see, around the throne of God, that these creatures are singing, God, you created all things because it pleased you to do so. And so that helps us understand that everything is here for a reason. That God's at work, that He has a purpose. It's God's purpose. And the trajectory of the world is not random. God set things into motion and He's bringing them to their completion, and that He continues to drive that plan forward, and that no matter what upheavals or unexpected crises and chaos hit our world, and no matter what happens in your life, that this God is still on the throne. This God is still working out His plan. Now, as we move into the next chapter We see more fully how God's plans are actually moving forward toward their completion. In chapter 5, Jesus steps onto the stage, and this is where we learn that Jesus is the key to unlocking God's agenda for world history. Now, he doesn't appear until verse 5, but what happens first sets the stage for his entrance. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 5. John says, "...then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne..." There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? So John's attention moves to all the creatures around the throne who were singing it, it moves back to the person of God the Father seated on the throne and and he notices God there is holding something in his hand and he looks and he sees it's a scroll you know a scroll is an ancient parchment or a book that they didn't have books with pages they they rolled it all up on a one long continuous parchment it's all rolled up like a roll of paper towels in a way and you and you un uh, as and you read it as you unfolded it but this scroll is sealed with seven wax seals, sealed with seals that can't just be opened by anybody. Now, why is that? It's because of what the scroll represents. We're going to see the scroll. It takes a major part in the story in the next four chapters after this. Because the scroll represents the emerging of God's plan in its final stages. As the seals are broken one by one, the scroll, the contents of the scroll are revealed, and the plan of God, which is hidden from us today, begins to unfold all the way to its conclusion. And so you see in verses 4 and 5, John says, I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory, and he is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. It doesn't look to John like anybody's going to be able to open this scroll, that God's purposes aren't going to be able to be fulfilled. But one of these heavenly beings gives him the assurance that there is one indeed. There is one and only one who is worthy to open the scroll. He's talking about Jesus. He doesn't name him, but he identifies him with two biblical references that make it clear who he's talking about. The one who is worthy is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's the heir to David's throne. We'll come back and look at those images in just a moment. But for now, we understand then that Jesus is the key to God's plan for the world. And once again, Revelation pulls back the curtain for us, and we can see things the way that they really are. Here we see the absolute uniqueness of Jesus. There's no other religious leader who ever lived who can unlock God's global purpose. There's no one else who has ever lived who can fulfill God's plan for humanity, but Jesus can, and Jesus does. Now, the next thing I want you to understand is why. Why is Jesus alone worthy of this really important role? And we're going to see as we go further through chapter five that Jesus is the key to history because of two things, because of his supremacy and because of his sacrifice. Now, one of the angelic beings has just introduced Jesus as this, as this lion. But then he moves on very quickly to another important symbol. Let's pick up again in verse 5. He says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he says, he's worthy to open the scroll. And then, he, and then John says, I saw also a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. Now, he didn't see two characters there. He saw one character who's introduced as the lion, and then he appears to John as this this lamb who was slaughtered. And so here's two key symbols of the book of Revelation that aren't really that hard to understand at all. We have the symbol of the lion, the symbol of power and kingship, on one hand, and the symbol of sacrifice on the other hand. And these two images capture the essence of Jesus' role in God's plan for the world. So you know that in the natural world, the lion symbolizes power and supremacy. That's why the lion is called the king of the beasts, right? The king of the jungle. The lion's atop of the food chain. But the Bible also infuses this symbol with even greater meaning because almost 2,000 years before Jesus, the ancient patriarch Jacob was blessing his children. He's he's an old man now. He's about to die. He's blessing his children in Genesis chapter 49, and here's what he says about his son Judah. He says, Judah, my son, is a young lion that has finished eating its prey, Like a lion he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. So he says, Judah, the one who's like a lion, he became the forefather of a tribe that took on his name, the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And and, and the blessing, the, the prophetic promise says that out of that tribe would arise a ruler over all of Israel. That was originally fulfilled by King David. He was of the tribe of Judah and his dynasty after him, all the tribe of Judah. But there's a greater ruler who will come after David. He says, there's one who all the nations will honor who would come out of his lineage that most powerful ruler, that most supreme king over Israel is Jesus. And that's why verse 5 calls him the heir to David's throne, the lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to the throne. His power and authority is unsurpassed. But then he's also this lamb, and the, the symbol of the lamb also has deep roots in Old Testament Scripture. Now, let me show you the first time that Jesus was referred to as a lamb. It was by John the Baptist. In John one twenty nine. the next day, John saw... And when John the Baptist said that, he's making this very incredible claim that all of his Jewish hearers would immediately have understood the implications of what John was saying. They would immediately have thought of the Old Testament sacrificial system because for every day of their lives, twice every day, a lamb was sacrificed in the temple. Once in the morning, once in the evening, a lamb was sacrificed to purify the the contamination of sin, to purify the temple from the contamination of sin. They'd seen that every single day. And in Leviticus chapter 4, the law that they had grown up with, that they had lived under, If you personally had sinned, that law required you to bring a sacrifice yourself. It was called the sin offering, and you'd bring this lamb to the temple to be killed in your place to cover over your sin. They were all familiar with that. They all knew the significance of the lamb. And so John is pointing to Jesus as this greater lamb that when he went to the cross, He gave up his life as a perfect final sacrifice in our place, a sacrifice greater than any physical lamb could be, so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins once for all. He's the lamb that looked as if he had been slaughtered. So the lion and the lamb, they seem to be like they're kind of opposite symbols, right? One is a symbol of of power and royal rule, and the other one is weak and powerless, and one is the predator, the other one is the prey. And yet, when you combine them in this one person, it explains why. Because he is both Savior and Lord. He's the Lord that he has the supreme power and authority, the lion. And he's the Savior in the, as the lamb. He's made the supreme sacrifice for us for our sins to be right with God. I hope you're as amazed today at Jesus as I am. But it's not just us. If we look in the book of Revelation in chapter 5, we see the whole creation expressing wonder and amazement at who Jesus is and what he does. This is our final point. We see that by his death, Jesus created a global people for for God. Revelation 5 in verse 7 The lamb steps forward and takes the scroll from the hand of God the Father because he is worthy to open and unfold the plan of God. He takes the scroll. And the moment that he does, the four living beings and the 24 elders around the throne of God erupt in praise, and they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every Tribe and language and people and nation. I want you to notice exactly what they're praising Jesus for. Because when the lamb was slaughtered on the cross, we often think about that in very individualistic terms. We think about how he died for my sins so that I could be right with God, and that's very true, but there's more to it we see here. It's not just an individualistic thing. That Jesus' sacrifice on the cross actually created a people for God, a global people for God, like a a whole new humanity is created by Jesus on the cross. And it consists of people from every tribe and every language and every nation, every people. That word means every ethnic group is represented in the eternal family of Jesus. That's what you're now part of if you belong to Jesus. And I look at that and that got like, this is like the wow for me. This is the wow factor for me in this. And I look at that and I say, this is amazing what Jesus did when he went to the cross. Now, I know we tend to think of Christianity in very narrow terms. Everybody does. We're all bound by our culture. We're all bound by our, our experience, no matter where you grow up or what culture you grew up in. We're all gonna, always going to look at it from our, our cultural or our natural, uh, frame, or our national frame of reference. And so it's very natural for Americans to think of Christianity in its Americanized version, right? That's all we know, most of us. It's very natural for us to think of Jesus in very European type of ter- terms because that's what we're used to in, here in northern Utah. That's our frame of reference for, for the majority of us. But, you know, I've been privileged by God. just as amazing experiences in my life. I've been privileged to worship with Christians in Japan, in the Philippines, in Singapore, in Malaysia, in Thailand, to sit there and sing songs of worship to God in languages that I have no idea what they're saying but I know they're worshiping God and we're worshiping Him together. And so what I've learned in those, those experiences are precious to me because I've learned that Christianity is so much more than just American. And sometimes we think that American Christianity is somehow the high point of God's plan for history. It's so much more than just American. But even here in the United States, if you've ever had opportunity to worship in a multicultural setting, a multi-ethnic or, a, or, a, or, a, or a, a, another ethnic church with a black church or a Hispanic church or, or any, whatever it might be, then, then you realize that Christianity is so much more than white, suburban, Republican. We have this great and incredible global heritage that, that it's good for us to understand that we're part of in Christ, that we're that we're part of this diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual people of God. That's what Jesus created when he went to the cross, and that's what the angels of heaven are continually praising Jesus for. That's just amazing. And then as you read that, though, bam, suddenly you see that things start to get even bigger than that. In verse 11, he says, Then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, and the living beings, and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing." So from 28 voices in verse 9, thousands and millions of angel voices now join in. There are these countless angels around the throne of God, and it appears at least that their number one job, at least for many of them, is just simply to exist to give praise and honor to the Father and the Son. And then look at verse 13. Went too far. Can we find verse 13 again? Sorry, guys. Verse 13, he says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So not only millions of angels, but every creature, wherever they exist, join in praise to God the Father and to Jesus the Lamb forever. Now, as I look at that passage, it, it mirrors another passage in the New Testament that was written uh, a few decades earlier than this. There's another place in the New Testament where it gives us a, an alternative picture of this event. I want to look there as we close to look there for a minute to think about the implications of this. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul here is writing. He says, therefore, God elevated him, Jesus, To the place of the of highest honor, and gave him the name above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is how the end of the story looks. Here's a picture. Another picture of what the scroll is all about. This is where God's plan for humanity ends up. It ends up with Jesus elevated to the highest place of honor and every created being in the universe acknowledging him. At the end of world history, there's not going to be any question. Latitude on this earth to do his worst for a time. But the end of the story has already been decided and it's not in doubt. Jesus wins in the end. But you know what? It's not just about world history. It's also about your history and your story. Jesus was sacrificed for your sins, for my sins, and that leaves every one of us with a choice to make because in Philippians chapter 2 here, it says, one day, every knee will bow before Jesus as Lord... But some are going to bow in bitter rebellion. They're going to bow as enemies before a conqueror. And they're going to be on the wrong side of God's judgment and God's justice that day. But others will bow the knee in willing, loving surrender those who've made Jesus central to their life, those who've entrusted their lives and their eternity to Him, they're the ones who will have their sins forgiven. They're the ones who join that global people of God as we bow the knee to Him. We don't have to wait till the end of history. We bow the knee to Him now. They're the ones who have embraced the sacrifice that the Lamb has made for them and then they are in turn are embraced by God in the end. And so I want to invite you today to respond to Jesus in faith. I want to invite you to trust completely and without reservation in the Lamb who was slaughtered for you. And I want to invite you to surrender your whole being to the Lion who rules supreme. Will you do that today? If you have questions about what that even means, come talk to us. We can answer those questions. If if you are ready to make that decision, Be sure to talk to us today because we'd love to encourage you to connect you with a mentor as you move forward in uh, in your life of faith. That's the decision that we all face. God has a plan. His plan is going to work out in the end. Jesus is central to that plan because he's the lion, because he's the lamb. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. Where do you stand with him? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your incredible goodness to us. That you saw our need. You could, see, you could see how much we need help. How much we struggle on our own. You didn't leave us alone in the universe. But you got a plan. You're working it out to the end. You didn't leave us just to wander aimlessly, chaotically, without meaning. But you've invited us into your story. And you sent your son Jesus with power, with authority, with, with a sacrificial servant heart to do what we could not do and cannot do. We cannot make ourselves right with you. We cannot make ourselves good enough. But Jesus did what we cannot do. And so thank you, Father, that you made this provision. And we can understand why Jesus is at the heart of your whole plan. And we, today, today we want to say yes to him. Whatever that looks like in our life, God, whether it means today's the day I start a relationship with Jesus by trusting in him. Today's the day, look, there's some things in my life that, that, the, that are not under his authority that are not according to his will or pleasure, and i surrender those today to you, Lord Jesus. So, Father, help us, empower us. We know we can't make and sustain these decisions on our own. We need your Holy Spirit to come to fill us up with your strength, your power, your goodness, to follow you fully. Lord, would you number us among those crowds, those throngs of heaven that would sing your praise that we give all the honor and glory to you. We pray it today in Jesus' name for his honor and his glory. Amen.